Agility part, we're fragile in that we can barely tolerate the slightest challenge, right? I mean, just the suggestion of being white has meaning will set us off. So we're fragile in that way, but it's not fragile at all in its impact. It's really effective. I need you to stop. And I think that white fragility functions as a kind of white racial bullying. That's Robin D'Angelo, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Robin D'Angelo on the fragility of whiteness. The great African-American sociologist W.E.B. Du Bois, in his 1903 classic book, The Souls of Black Folk, wrote, The problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. Well, here we are in the 21st century, and the color line and racial injustice are front and center. Some white people, particularly with the murder of George Floyd, have acknowledged racism as a major issue. Others, when challenged, are defensive and uncomfortable and reactively assert, who, me? Why, some of my best friends? You know the rest. Demonstrations have brought people in the streets protesting racial injustice. Symbols of oppression, such as statues, are toppled and Confederate flags are lowered. These are first steps toward a reckoning that is long overdue. Much more is needed. Our guest today is Robin D'Angelo. She's an award-winning scholar who teaches at the University of Washington. She's the author of the bestseller, White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. She spoke in Seattle in late June 2018. This talk is happening on the ancestral territories of indigenous peoples. And I believe very, very deeply that if we don't know our history, if we cannot trace the past into the present, uh, we cannot explain current conditions in ways that are transformative rather than, than victim blaming. A piece of white fragility is that white people are not taught their history. We don't know our history. This is arguably the most complex, nuanced social dilemma since the beginning of this country. Uh, and there are myriad roads in, and all of them are essential. But so consistently left off the table is uh, whiteness, right? So we often learn about this group and that group and their struggles and their triumphs and their heroes and heroines. And yet we don't ask ourselves struggles and triumphs in relation to whom? Again, I'm going to focus on, on uh, white folks and white people. So I want to start uh, by reading a bit from the beginning. White people in North America live in a society that is deeply separate and unequal by race, and white people are the beneficiaries of that separation and inequality. As a result, we are insulated from racial stress at the same time that we come to feel entitled to and deserving of our advantage. Given how seldom we experience racial discomfort in a society we dominate, we haven't had to build our racial stamina. Socialized into a deeply internalized sense of superiority that we either are unaware of or can never admit to ourselves, we become highly fragile in conversations about race. We consider a challenge to our racial worldviews as a challenge to our very identities as good moral people. 
Thus, we perceive any attempt to connect us to the system of racism as an unsettling and unfair moral offense. The smallest amount of racial stress is intolerable. The mere suggestion that being white has meaning often triggers a range of defensive responses. And these include emotions such as anger, fear, and guilt, and behaviors such as argumentation, silence, and withdrawal from the stress-inducing situation. These responses work to reinstate white equilibrium as they repel the challenge, return our racial comfort, and maintain our dominance within the racial hierarchy. I conceptualize this process as white fragility. Though white fragility is triggered by discomfort and anxiety, it is born of superiority and entitlement. White fragility is not weakness per se. In fact, it is a powerful means of white racial control and the protection of white advantage. In my early days uh, of work of what was then termed a diversity trainer, I was taken aback by how angry and defensive so many white people became at the suggestion that they were connected to racism in any way. The very idea that they would be required to attend a workshop on racism outraged them. They entered the room angry and made that feeling clear to us throughout the day as they slammed their notebooks down on the table, refused to participate in exercises, and argued against any and all points. I couldn't understand their resentment or disinterest in learning more about such a complex social dynamic as racism. These reactions were especially perplexing when there were few or no people of color in their workplace and they had the opportunity to learn from my co-facilitators of color. I assumed that in these circumstances, an educational workshop on racism would be appreciated. After all, didn't the lack of diversity indicate a problem or at least suggest that some perspectives were missing? Or that the participants might be undereducated about race because of scant cross-racial interactions? It took me several years to see beneath these reactions. But over time, I began to see what lay beneath this anger and resistance to discuss race or listen to people of color. I observed consistent responses from a variety of participants. For example, many white participants who lived in white suburban neighborhoods and had no sustained relationships with people of color were absolutely certain that they held no racial prejudice or animosity. Other participants simplistically reduced racism to a matter of nice people versus mean people. There was both knee-jerk defensiveness about any suggestion that being white had meaning and a refusal to acknowledge any advantage to being white. And over time, I began to see what I think of as the pillars of whiteness, the unexamined beliefs that prop up our racial responses. I could see the power of the belief that only bad people were racist, as well as how individualism allowed white people to exempt themselves from the forces of socialization. I could see how we are taught to think about racism only as discrete acts committed by individual people rather than as a complex, interconnected system. And in light of so many white expressions of resentment toward people of color, I realized that we see ourselves as entitled to and deserving of more than people of color deserve. I saw our investment in a system that serves us. I also saw how hard we worked to deny all this and how defensive we became when these dynamics were named. In turn, I saw how our defensiveness maintained the racial status quo. None of the white people that I identify would identify as racist. 
Uh, in fact, I think they would most likely identify as racially progressive and vehemently deny any complicity with racism. Yet all of their responses illustrate white fragility and how it holds racism in place. These responses spur the daily frustrations and indignities people of color endure from white people who see themselves as open-minded and thus not racist. I believe that white progressives cause the most daily damage to people of color. And I define a white progressive as any white person who thinks he or she is not racist or is less racist or is in the choir or already gets it. White progressives can be the most difficult for people of color because to the degree that we think we, we have it, we're going to put all of our energy into making sure you think that we have it and none of it into what we need to be doing for the rest of our lives. Right? <laughs> white progressives do indeed uphold and perpetrate racism, but our defensiveness and certitude make it virtually impossible to explain to us how we do so. So um, I'm pretty sure I'm speaking to a room filled with white progressives. <laughs> so let me just be clear, you are not the choir. Uh, there is no choir. I am not the choir. Uh, the, when I say there is no choir, it's because my, my learning will never be finished. And this moment I think I'm the choir, I think I, I'm going to be done and I'm going to have certitude. Uh, I often um, joke, but on some, some levels it, it's kind of true. When I first applied to be that diversity trainer back in the early 90s, I, I thought, well, of course I'm qualified to lead uh, discussions on racism. I'm a vegetarian. Um, <laughs> How could I be racist? <laughs> now, I would need to be vegan today. Um, but, you know, in the 90s, that was, pretty, that was pretty alternative, right? I even got, got called a communist once when I said, no, I'm a vegetarian. Um, but, you know, my point is, I, I just thought it was all about open-mindedness and alternativeness. And, and, and let me just say that, you know, I love Seattle. And everything I learned about white fragility, I learned here working with white progressives. <laughs> so, chapter one, challenges to talking to white people about racism. I have never met a white person who did not have an opinion on racism, have you? Not only do we all have opinions but they tend to be very emotionally charged, and that has nothing to do with the, whether they're informed or not. I have an opinion on virtually everything that does not make them informed. I, I don't believe you can grow up or spend any significant time in the United States without developing opinions on racism, and they will be emotional and strongly held. And again, that has nothing to do with whether they're informed. And in fact, if you are white and you have not devoted years of sustained study, struggle, and focus on this topic, your opinions are necessarily very limited. And no, a trip to Costa Rica, multiracial nieces and nephews, these are not sustained study, struggle, and focus. Now, now, how can I say that when I don't know most of the people in this room? Uh, and this, of course, is the first thing that tends to trigger white fragility, generalizing about white people. Um, as a sociologist, I'm really comfortable generalizing about white people. Um, social life is predictable and patterned you know, in, in really observable ways, and we've got to grapple with those patterns. But I can say this 
that, that your opinions without sustained study struggle focus, or, you know, mistake making, relationship building, repair, uh, they're superficial because nothing, nothing in society gives you the information you need to have more than that. In fact, you can get through teacher education in this country without discussing racism. If you're in a progressive teacher education program, you'll have one required multicultural education class. Uh, but that doesn't mean you'll be talking about racism. You might just be talking about how to introduce ethnic authors in February. That is the first challenge, humility. The second is individualism. I, 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 apparently, white people do not understand socialization um, because we really think that we are exempt from it. Uh, and, of course, the irony of that is because we're socialized to value uh, the individual. Uh, we put a lot of effort there. But we think that, you know, just because I say I am or want to be, I could be exempt from these forces. So that is another challenge. Again, generalizing, suggesting uh, race has meaning for white people will often trigger white fragility. We think if we don't see it, it isn't there, and you haven't explained it to me yet enough so that I understand it, so I'm not really sure that could be valid. And we tend to use our reactions as a way out. There is no way we're going to get where we need to go from a place of white comfort. And I am comfortable uh, racially virtually 24-7. Uh, so that is not my goal, but we will often use that lack of comfort as a sign that something's been done wrong rather than something probably has been done right, and that we need to use that as a way in to the deeper framework that would cause such upset uh, rather than use it as a way out. And we don't understand racism as a system. Racism is a system, not an event, and it's the system we're in. And none of us could be, and none of us were exempt from its forces. But the way we're taught to think of racism functions beautifully to not only obscure the system, but to exempt us from its forces, right? or to have us uh, believe we are exempted from its forces. Now, as a white person, I was raised to be racially illiterate. And I, I actually think all white people are raised to be racially illiterate um, in this culture. And in gaining racial literacy... Uh, I have had to understand not just the collective dynamics and dimensions of racism, but how racism in, uh, impacts different groups who are perceived and defined as people of color, how it uh, impacts them differently, right? So not all peoples of color experience racism differently. The things I've internalized about different groups is different, uh, where and how they are positioned always in relation to whiteness or far away from whiteness, and how that manifests, right? All of that must be understood. Um, but after a good 20-plus years of talking day in and day out to white people about racism, I feel very confident to say that there is something profoundly anti-black in this culture, and that nothing seems to turn white people's cranks of resentment, like thinking black people got something over on us that they didn't deserve. And, and the deeper belief is that they're inherently undeserving. I believe in the, in the white mind, black people are the ultimate racial other. And that there are these bookends. And again, your perceived proximity to each end of that impacts how you're going to experience your racialization. So having said that, and, and um, 
not really having time to do history, I just want to give you one glance at the trajectory of anti-blackness in this, in this country since its beginning. We can literally think about it as state-sanctioned, organized crime, but at least discrimination against African Americans from the beginning. And it starts with kidnapping and 300 years of enslavement, torture, rape, and brutality, and it carries on. You see bans on testifying against whites, which made it technically legal to murder black people in this country, and you are now in my lifetime. And then we see employment discrimination with copious empirical evidence. So let's pick it up there. Employment discrimination, educational discrimination, bias laws and policing practices, white flight, subprime mortgages, mass incarceration, the school-to-prison pipeline, disproportionate special ed referrals and punishments, testing, tracking, school funding, biased media representation, historical omissions, and so much more. It is a system, not an event. It's the system we're in, and none of us could be, and none of us were exempt from its forces. We want to be unique and special individuals, then we need to figure out how whatever we see is special and different about us set us up into that system, because it did. So I'm talking, I I know white people really well. I'm talking X, and you're like, ha, I was Y, right? Okay, you were Y, most whites are X. How did Y set you up? It did. The question is not if, it's how. I'm going to repeat it. It's a system, not an event. And how do we cope with the moral trauma of what I just read to you? Resma Menikin has a beautiful book, My Grandmother's Hands, where he talks about racial trauma. The, there's a trauma, I believe, to white people of racism, but I don't think it's, it, it's a different, it's a moral trauma, right? And it's a piece of white fragility, not being able to face our complicity in this system. Well, historically, we projected our sins onto the black body. Lazy, shiftless, criminal. We projected our sins onto the black body. Today, in addition to doing that, we obscure the system of racism that we uphold and we exempt ourselves from its forces. Right? And we do this in a way that appears to be progressive, that race doesn't matter to us. One of the aspects of, of institutional power is the ability to disseminate your worldview to everyone, to position it as objective and universal, and to tell the story the story of the other when we are not in relationship with the other. So I want to give you an example of the power of the story. Uh, And I want to do it through the Jackie Robinson story. You all know Jackie Robinson, right? So Jackie Robinson has been quite celebrated for doing something. What's the tagline that goes with Jackie Robinson? He broke the color line. So let's do a little discourse analysis. Because every, every year on the anniversary, we celebrate uh, him breaking the color line. So think about what that invokes. He was exceptional. He was special. He did it. Finally, one of them had what it took to break through and play with us. Up until him, nobody had what it took. So subtext, inferior group. But he did it. And, of course, the day he did it, The day he broke the color line, racism in sports ended. (laughs) 
So imagine if we told a story like this. Jackie Robinson, the first black man that whites allowed to play Major League Baseball. And I want you to notice the difference in that story. One, that's the truth. It didn't matter how exceptional he was, and I actually don't believe he was the first most exceptional. Uh, but if, he did, if we didn't say he could play, he couldn't play. If he walked out onto that field before we said you can walk out on the field, the police would have removed him. It wasn't up to him. Now, the reason I want us to tell the story the second way is, one, because it's true, and two, because I need role models. How did white people get organized? What did they do behind the scene? What barriers did they face? What challenges, right? What strategies did they use? And could we use any of those today and adapt any of those today? Right? It's not about me wanting to point out how bad white people are. So chapter three looks at racism uh, after the civil rights uh, movement. And after the civil rights movement, it made a brilliant adaptation so post-civil rights, uh, racism got reduced to the following formula. A racist is an individual who consciously does not like people based on race and is intentionally mean to them. Always an individual, must be conscious, must be intentional. And that definition exempts virtually all white people from the system of racism. This definition... I believe is the root of virtually all white defensiveness on racism. Have you guys noticed any white defensiveness on racism? <laughs> yeah. It, it makes it virtually impossible to talk to the average white person about the inevitable absorption of a racist worldview that we get from being socialized in a racist culture in which white supremacy is the bedrock. Because you suggest that anything I have done is racially problematic in any way, and I'm going to hear a question to my moral character, and I'm going to need to defend my moral character. You know, we've probably seen this a, a million times. So that, that definition actually functions to protect racism, even as it looks like progress. The racism became bad uh, post-civil rights. So this, this sets up what I think about as the good-bad binary, uh, that kind of, it's either or. Racists are bad, not racists are good. Uh, and we know how to fill that in, don't we? Ignorant, bigoted, prejudiced, mean-spirited, definitely old. And when we die off, there'll be no more racism. And when white people hear me and they feel angry and pissed off and defensive, can I just say this now that I, you guys are listening to me up here? When you laugh at my jokes, I'm going to keep getting looser and looser. Damn white people are pissy about racism. And so if you're sitting here feeling that, just see if it isn't rooted in, if, in this definition. And if you cannot let go of this, you're just not going to be able to move forward. So aversive racism is a form of, of what sociologists call new racism, right? And so it's, it's racism that progressive whites are most likely to hold, um, but because it conflicts with our identities as good people, we're most likely to uh, be in denial about it. It's a manifestation of racism that well-intentioned people who see themselves as educated and progressive are more likely to exhibit. It exists under the surface of consciousness because it conflicts with consciously held beliefs of racial equity and justice. Aversive racism is a subtle but insidious form as aversive racists enact racism in ways that allow them to maintain a positive self-image, e.g., I have lots of friends of color, I judge people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. 
And whites enact racism while maintaining a positive self-image in many ways. For example, rationalizing racial segregation as unfortunate but necessary to access good schools. Rationalizing that our workplaces are virtually all white because people of color just don't apply. Avoiding direct racial language and using racially coded terms such as urban, underprivileged, diverse, sketchy, and good neighborhoods. Denying that we have few cross-racial relationships by proclaiming how diverse our community or workplace is. And attributing inequality between whites and people of color to causes other than racism. Consider a conversation I had with a white friend. She was telling me about a white couple who she knew who had just moved to New Orleans and bought a house for a mere $25,000. Of course, she immediately added, they also had to buy a gun. I immediately knew they had bought a home in a black neighborhood. This was a moment of white racial bonding between this couple who shared the story of racial danger and my friend, and then between my friend and me as she repeated the story. Through this tale, the four of us fortified familiar images of the horror of black space and drew boundaries between us and them without ever having to directly name race or openly express our disdain for black space. Notice that the need for a gun is a key part of this story. It would not have the degree of social capital it holds if the emphasis were on the price of the house alone. Rather, the story's emotional power rests on why a house would be that cheap. Because it's in a black neighborhood where white people literally might not get out alive. Yet while very negative and stereotypical representations of blacks were reinforced in that exchange, not naming race provided plausible deniability. In fact, in preparing to share this incident, I texted my friend and asked her the name of the city her friends had moved to. I also wanted to confirm my assumption that she was talking about a black neighborhood. I share the text exchange here. Hey, what city did you say your friends had bought a house in for 25000 She replies, New Orleans. They said they live in a very bad neighborhood and they each have to have a gun to protect themselves. I wouldn't pay five cents for that neighborhood. I reply, I assume it's a black neighborhood? Yes, you get what you pay for. I'd rather pay 500000 and live somewhere where I wasn't afraid. I reply, I wasn't asking because I want to live there. I'm writing about this in my book. (laughs) The way that white people talk about race without ever coming out and talking about race. She had a very interesting response to that. I wouldn't want you to live there because it's too far away from me. Notice that when I simply ask what city the house is in, she repeats the story about the neighborhood being so bad that her friends need guns. When I ask if the neighborhood is black, she's comfortable confirming that it is. But when I tell her that I'm interested in how whites talk about race without talking about race, she switches the narrative. Now her concern is about not wanting me to live so far away. This is a classic example of aversive racism, holding deep racial disdain that surfaces in daily discourse, but not being able to admit it because the disdain conflicts with our self-image and professed beliefs. 
Now, readers may be asking themselves, but if the neighborhood is really dangerous, why is acknowledging this danger a sign of racism? Research and implicit bias has shown that perceptions of criminal activity are influenced by race. White people will perceive danger simply by the presence of black people. We cannot trust our perceptions when it comes to race and crime. But regardless of whether the neighborhood is actually more or less dangerous than other neighborhoods, what is salient about this exchange is how it functions racially and what that means for the white people engaged in it. For my friend and me, this conversation did not increase our awareness of the danger of some specific neighborhood. Rather, the exchange reinforced our fundamental beliefs about black people. Toni Morrison uses the term race talk to capture, quote, the explicit insertion into everyday life of racial signs and symbols that have no meaning other than positioning African Americans into the lowest level of the racial hierarchy. Unquote. Casual race talk is a key component of white racial framing because it accomplishes the interconnected goals of elevating whites while demeaning people of color. Race talk always implies a racial us and them. You're listening to Robin D'Angelo on the fragility of whiteness. To place a credit card order for CDs of this program and for her book, White Fragility, just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. We are offering you, our listeners, written transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s free of church. Just call us at that number, 1-800-444-1977. 1-800-444-1977. Our website, alternativeradio.org. Folks who have seen me present before know that, that I use this metaphor, and I do tend to think in metaphors. And as I do the work that I do and I talk on a daily basis to white people, I literally got this image in my mind of a dock or a pier. And, and what it signifies for me uh, are two things. One, how, how surface or superficial our, our narratives are. But also, the dock, if you look from above, appears to be floating on the water. But it's not. There's an entire structure submerged under the water that props that dock up. It rests on literally pillars anchored into the ocean floor. And everything I do in my work is trying to get us off the top of the dock and under there to examine those pillars. Because despite all the... On top of the dock, our outcomes have not changed. So we have to ask ourselves, what's going on? So as I listen to these narratives, I think about them in two overall categories, color blind and color celebrate. So let's start with the first set, color blind. Probably the number one color blind racial narrative is, I was taught to treat everyone the same. Let me just tell you, when I hear this from a white person and I hear it, frequently, there's a bubble over my head. Uh, and it, it has a few things in it. The first thing is, oh, this person doesn't understand basic socialization. This person doesn't understand culture. Ooh, this person is not particularly self-aware. And I need to give a heads up to the white folks in the room. When people of color hear us say this, they're generally not thinking, all right, I am talking to a woke white person right now. 
usually some form of eye rolling. And, and, and actually, I recently co-facilitated with a, with a black woman who, who said, that is the most dangerous white person to me. It's not functioning the way we think it is. And, and this is another piece of humility for us. We are the least qualified to determine whether we understand this or not. Because right? so often the things that we think convey that are not conveying that. And all of these are, are within that, you know, it's in the past, you know, just everyone struggles. My parents weren't racist. That's why I'm not racist. Oh, my parents were racist. That's why I'm not racist. doesn't matter really what we say first. What comes next must be I'm not racist. And this is another one I actually ask white folks to remove from their vocabulary. Oh, by the way, along with reverse racism, which there's no such thing. Remove from your vocabulary anything on the topic of race that begins with just happen to be regardless, including that your neighborhood just happened to be white. So I call these colorblind because they basically say, I don't see it, and if I see it, it has no meaning. And there's a question that has never failed me in my efforts to uncover how we pull this off. Uh, And that question is not, is this true or is this false? Because if we apply that question, we're going to argue and argue and argue. The question that has never failed me is, how do these narratives function in the conversation? If we ask that question, we can see that all of these narratives function to exempt the person from any part of the problem. All of them take race off the table. All of them close rather than open the exploration. And in doing that, all of them protect the current racial hierarchy and the white position within it. It doesn't have to be your intention. And I'll just be blunt. I'm not interested in your intention. I'm interested in how this functions. What is the impact of these narratives? They are closers, not openers. Well, probably the folks in this room, we're beyond colorblindness, right? What do we say? We say things like this. Oh, I work in a very diverse environment. If we can't say that, and many of us can't, we'll come up with some kind of proximity. I have people calling my family. Me? I'm not racist. I used to live in New York. (laughs) This one will get used interchangeably with, I'm not racist, I'm from Canada. I'm not racist, I'm from Europe. Apparently there are no racism in any of those places. So how many of you in a conversation with a white person have heard some version of those narratives right there, those three? Okay. Okay. All right, and if we're going to be really honest, we've said some version of these narratives. That last one, uh, sociologists actually have a term for it. It's called the inoculation case. I've been near people of color, and it stripped me of my racism. (laughs) And I want you to notice how often white people invoke proximity as evidence. This, This is important because it helps reveal what's under the dock. It helps reveal what we think racism is, that we would invoke proximity to show that we're not racist. And I need to understand what I think racism is if I'm going to unpack my role in it. So let's do some discourse analysis. Let's think critically uh, about these three narratives. When a white person invokes one of these narratives in a conversation about racism, they're giving you their evidence. Racism comes up, I say this, this is my evidence. In my mind, what's that my evidence of? What do I want to make sure you know? I'm not racist. In order to be good at evidence, it must distinguish me from a racist. So apparently, a racist cannot do these things, or this wouldn't be good evidence. So a racist cannot work three cubicles down from a person of color. 
could not uh, have people come in their family and, and, and it would find living in New York intolerable, even though I could think of at least one racist that lives in New York. So, uh, <laughs> so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to put it right out here. As a result of being born and raised as a white person in this culture, I have a racist worldview. I have deep racist biases. I have developed racist patterns. And I have investments in a system that has served me very well and is very comfortable for me and really helped me get over sexism and classism that I struggle with. And I also have investments in not seeing any of that for what it would mean for my identity and what it would require of me in action. Right? I can choose it. Don't want it. Got it. <laughs> and it's actually incredibly transformative and liberating to begin from that premise so that you can begin to think, well... How's it coming out in me so that I might be able to stop that or ameliorate that rather than it, it's not coming out in me? So again, if we apply the same question, not true, false, or right, wrong, but how do these narratives function in the conversation, we get the same answer. They all exempt the person from any part of the problem. They all take race off the table. They all close rather than open, and they all protect the current racial hierarchy and the white position within it, they're actually in practice and impact not any more progressive. And they have not changed our outcomes. So we have to get under here and see what's going on. And what I think is going on, what I think of as the linchpins of new racism, is the good-bad binary, and that one's really effective, deep implicit bias, which you can't help but absorb, this precious ideology of individualism, at the same time, this idea that we don't speak from any particular position but speak for all of humanity, and people of color speak for their group, and when we're interested in hearing about that, we'll ask them, but we'll cover everything else. Internalized superiority, which you cannot help but have if you are raised white in this culture, and in some level an investment in not seeing this. And finally, the power of segregation uh, to hold it all in place. The, the profound, I think for me, the most profound message of all is that I could call a white neighborhood good. I could call a school filled with all white teachers and white children a good school. That the fundamental message is that there's no inherent value in the perspectives or experiences of people of color. So these messages are raining down on us relentlessly, 24-7, and we don't have umbrellas. And nothing could and nothing did exempt us from their forces. It's on us to figure out how they shape us, not if. All of this sets up some patterns. Preference for racial segregation, lack of understanding what racism is, seeing ourselves as individuals, not understanding that we bring our history with us. History matters. It's a history of harm. Assuming everyone is having our experience, arrogance, lack of humility, unwillingness to listen, dismissing what we don't understand, inability to or lack of interest in sustaining relationships with people of color, wanting to jump over the hard personal work and get to solutions, confusing not agreeing with not understanding. Is it possible that you're not actually informed enough to uh, disagree? Have you ever had somebody say, no, you misunderstood? No, you misunderstood. What if the person 
understood you perfectly. In fact, they even understood what you meant. And you don't understand how what you meant comes from a racist framework. The need to maintain white solidarity, right? That's the unspoken agreement amongst white people that we'll keep each other comfortable around our racism. Highest priority is saving face. I always like to say, you know, when I do a caucus group or something and the white people are afraid I might think they're racist. <laughs> I think you're racist. <laughs> I do. I, I think I am too, right? Uh, but yeah, let's, just, like, let's be done with that. And actually your carefulness and you're hiding yourself and you're not contributing to the conversation won't actually uh, change that assessment at all. And, and people of color don't find that to uh, build trust. Defensiveness, of course, and a focus on intentions over impact. So when any of this uh, is triggered, we get off our white racial equilibrium. What is white racial equilibrium? Well, racial comfort, that's for sure. Seeing ourselves as individuals, seeing ourselves as just human, obliviousness. There's like a stew inside of white people that makes us really irrational on this topic. And, and I've tried to kind of identify some of those pieces. But one of them is that we really are taught not to see this. So if you're a person of color scratching your head thinking, how can they not see this? Like, I just don't believe they don't see this. We actually really don't see it. Oh, and hell yes, we know it. And we do see it, but we cannot admit that. It's, both these things are actually true. We don't see it, and we do see it, but can't admit to it. And it, it's part of what makes us so irrational. Right? Apathy, dominance, right? control. And entitlement to people of color's bodies. Yes. Uh, Resma talks about, it's really been only in the last couple of decades that people of color have had dominion over their own bodies. And so, so entitlement to people of color's bodies comes out in lots of ways, right? From just, from just violating the space to touching the bodies to expecting you to carry the emotional burden of race, you know, all of that. The uh, great example of white fragility and is the eruption of umbrage and criminalization uh, when a black man simply went down on one knee respectfully. Talking about Colin Kaepernick. <laughs> What an example. So what interrupts our racial equilibrium? Well, if you challenge objectivity, if you talk openly about race, if you challenge white entitlement to racial comfort, if you challenge uh, to the expectation that people of color will serve us and do our work for us, if you break with white solidarity, you challenge white racial innocence, challenge individualism, challenge the meritocracy, challenge to white authority, challenge to white centrality, challenge to universalism, right? Suggesting that maybe, in fact, we don't speak for all of humanity. We speak from a particular perspective, and it's deeply limited, okay? So this leads to white fragility, all of this insular, coddled environment builds an inability to, to bear witness, inability to, to have capacity to hold the discomfort. I've been thinking lately that part of what it means to be white is to never have to be, never have to bear witness to the pain of racism on people of color. 
and never having to bear witness to the pain I've caused to people of color, never having to be accountable to that pain, and in all the ways that I push off accountability. When I thought of this term, white fragility, the fragility part, we're fragile in that we can barely tolerate the slightest challenge, right? I mean, I'll show you my emails. <laughs> Just the suggestion that being white has meaning will set us, us off, but th- th- there's a continuum. So we're fragile in that way, but it's not fragile at all in its impact. It's really effective. I need you to stop. I need to get back into my position and my entitlement and my comfort, and I will do what I need to do to get you to stop. And I think that white fragility functions as a kind of white racial bullying We make it so miserable for people of color to talk to us about their experiences, to call us in, that most of the time they don't because it's not worth getting punished more. You know, trust me, they they take home so much of it because it so rarely goes well, right? What what feelings do white people have when we often try to give them feedback Uh, uh, on our racist patterns, right? Tell me if you don't recognize these. Attacked, silenced, shamed, accused, insulted, judged, angry, scared, outraged. How do we act when we feel this way? We withdraw, we cry, we go silent, we argue, we deny, we focus on our intentions, we seek forgiveness, we explain, we insist there was a misunderstanding. What kind of claims do we make to justify behaving this way and feeling this way? I know people of color. I marched in the 60s. I took this in college. The real oppression is class. You misunderstood me. You're playing the race card. If you knew me or understood me, you'd know I can't be racist. This is not welcoming to me. You're making me feel guilty. I want to say something about um, shame. Whenever white people jump to a narrative really quickly on racism, I'm always suspicious of it. And shame is one we jump to really fast. Uh, White progressives really, really like to lean on how much racial shame they feel. And I, I would actually ask you to think about on a daily basis, how often do you, if you are white, feel racial shame? Seriously. Well, first of all, probably just when racism comes up, and even then, so maybe 2% of the time? Right? Uh, I was in New York recently, and I stepped over a homeless uh, man who was black uh, on my way into Whole Foods, and I felt shame for just a minute, but then Rainier cherries are in season, and I, I forgot all about it. I, I mean, I'm serious. Like, that, that's how that functions. I, I really don't think we feel that shame that much. But even if we do, then, then you have to ask yourself, how is it functioning? What does it do for you? What is the cultural capital that you get from that? And if you, if you can't answer that it's, it's somehow moving you forward in your anti-racist efforts, then you're going to have to f- get through it. It's just one little innocent thing. Some people find offense. You hurt my feelings. This is political correctness. I don't feel safe. I'll just really quickly say the word safe coming out of the mouths of white people on topic of racism is illegitimate.
Because what does safety mean from a position of social, historical, institutional, cultural power and privilege? No, it's generally we don't, we don't feel comfortable. But that doesn't have as much cultural capital. It's not as precious. Problem is your tone. And I know what it is to be oppressed. So, so if we think about the doc, right? The feelings, the behaviors, the claims. What could be the underlying assumptions that would lead us to make these claims? As a white person, I will be the judge of whether racism has occurred. My learning's finished. I know all I need to know. Racism can only be intentional. Not having intended it cancels it out. White people who experience another form of oppression can't experience racial privilege. If I'm a good person, I can't be racist. My unexamined perspective is equal to an informed one. (laughs) I'm entitled to remain comfortable, so you have made a very serious social breach. As a white person, I know the best way to challenge racism, and you're doing it wrong. Nice people cannot be racist. If I can't see it, it's not legitimate. If I have any proximity to people of color, I can't be racist. If I have no proximity to people of color, I can't be racist because I'm racially innocent. I would make a case that that white people who grew up on farms and rural environments and there are no people of color around actually are less sheltered from racism because you are left to rely on the most problematic sources for your understanding of people of color. My worldview is objective and yours isn't. I don't know what else could be functioning under there. So how does all that function? Maintains white solidarity, closes off self-reflection, minimizes, silences the discussion, makes white people the victims, protects the limited worldview, focuses on the messenger, not the message, rallies more resources to white people, protects racism. So I'm going to end by just bringing this question up so that I can preempt it because I really don't like this question. (laughs) If this is the question you have right now, if you're white and this is the question you have right now, then I have one for you. What has allowed you to remain ignorant about how to interrupt racism? And that's actually a sincere, challenging question. (laughs) Because if you really start to map it out, uh, you'll have your answer. I want to end with what could be under that dock if we had a transformed frame because we can't get where we need to go from where we are right now. Being good or bad is not relevant. Racism is a multi-layered system infused in everything. Whites have blinders on racism. I have blinders on racism. Racism is complex. I don't have to understand it in order for it to be valid. White comfort maintains the racial status quo. Discomfort is necessary and important. I must not confuse comfort with safety. I am safe in discussions of race. The anecdote to guilt is action. I bring my group's history with me. History matters. I might see myself as just an individual. The people of color in my life see me as a white individual. The question is not if but how. Nothing exempts me from the forces of racism. Whites are unconsciously invested in racism. I am unconsciously invested in racism. I want you to imagine if, if, if white people internalize this framework, how revolutionary it would be. Bias is implicit. 
I don't expect to be aware of mine without a lot of effort. Feedback from people of color indicates trust because it is a huge moment of risk across a deep history of harm. Feedback on white racism is really difficult to give. How I receive it is not uh, as relevant as the feedback itself. You bring it to me upset, bring it to me upset. There are no rules for how you should tell me that I've harmed you. It takes courage to break with white solidarity. How can I support those that do? How can I back? If I'm not willing to step out and take a risk, how can I back other white people who do instead of tearing them down? Finding that one thing that I said in this talk tonight that you can grab onto so that you don't have to look at yourself. Given socialization, it's more likely that I am the one who doesn't understand the issue. Can you imagine if white people were coming from that place? Racism hurts, even kills people of color 24-7. Interrupting it is more important than my feelings, ego, or self-image. I only have time for two questions, so here's the one I'm going to answer. But how can a person of color navigate around white fragility in the workplace when direct confrontation usually ends in retaliation? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I just want white people to understand, how much psychic and emotional labor people of color go through to, to walk on eggshells around us. You know, white people so bitterly complain, oh, you mean I can't say anything anymore? I have to walk on eggshells? Please. The emotional labor and the knots people of color tie themselves into so they don't trigger us uh, is just heart-wrenching. Um, and so, so I guess the first thing I want to say is I want, I want us to, to knock this nonsense off so that this doesn't have to be the question. But it is the question. Um, so there, there are different strategies. I actually think that choosing not to address it for people of color can be an empowered choice. I got to get through the day. I'm not throwing my pearls. Uh, so no, I'm going to let it go. And that's actually a choice I'm making. And it's an empowered choice. Another strategy can be to, to elicit, uh, elicit one of those white progressives who says they uh, are an ally, and then say, then step up, and um, not not to take care, not to take care of you. But there are times when that's a really good strategy. Is uh, so much of my training came from women of color saying, "You go talk to that person that's giving uh, us a hard time in the training." Uh, they're going to hear it from you better. And, you know, I, I, I'm from Seattle. I'm as conflict avoidant as the rest of us um, who are white. But that really built up my stamina. Those are some strategies. And, and because I know it's late and because of time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close. So, so just thank you guys all. Our work will never be finished. Okay. That was Robin D'Angelo on the fragility of whiteness. Robin D'Angelo teaches at the University of Washington. She's an award-winning scholar and is the author of the bestseller, White Fragility. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and supported solely by individuals just like you. Every week, we feature progressive voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Noam Chomsky, Angela Davis, Kianga Yamata-Taylor, Rashid Khalidi, and Arundhati Roy. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. 
To place a credit card order for CDs of today's program, Robin D'Angelo on the Fragility of Whiteness, and for her book, White Fragility, just call us at 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. We're making written transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program available to you, our listeners, free of charge. Just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Series theme music is performed by the Kronos Quartet from Pieces of Africa. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. Just go to the website, alternativeradio.org, alternativeradio.org. We, too, are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, MP3s, or CDs of our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there. Listening to CJSW 90.9 FM, broadcasting in Calgary, Alberta, on the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, home to the people of the Treaty 7 region and the Metis Nation of Alberta, Region 3.